Welcome to the Awareness Podcast. Every week, one of our four hosts, Bill Free, Jackie Greggs, Cindy Krupp, and Susan Telford, and their guests, will discuss spiritual awakening in everyday life. Listen in as they discuss their newest insights and share what has helped them remove the obstacles to self-realization, inner peace, and happiness. Hi everybody, this is Susan Telford and I'm here today with my guest Diedrich Walzak. It's lovely to see you again Diedrich and to talk to you again. I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. It's wonderful to be here and then you just reminded me that it's been two years and two it's, years. Unbelie- it's unbelievable. And- I know. I, I keep I keep marveling how eighty years went by in a blink, but yeah. but it's. Uh, <laughs> I'll be eighty in July. It's it's unbelievable. Yeah, I'm, I'm, it is unbelievable. Fourteen years past my expiry date. So. Yeah. <laughs> well, we'll get to we'll get to that. Yeah. So, um, for those of you that don't know Diedrich Walzak, um, I just want to tell you a little bit about him. He was born in 1942 in a tiny village south of what is now Jakarta in Indonesia. And the first three and a half years of Diedrich's life was spent in Japanese prisoner of war camps. And he says it was there that he formed most of his core beliefs, beliefs that he thought were his actual character. And after 50 odd years of what he describes as self-loathing, drug and alcohol abuse, he decided that there must be a better way and it was time to change his mind. And through the practice of Buddhism, A Course in Miracles and Attitudinal Healing, he developed a radical forgiveness process which allowed him to transform the little S self that he hated into the capital S self, whose only function is to extend love. Choose Again is the name of his six-step process and also the name of his charitable society, which has a healing centre in Costa Rica, where Diedrich is currently um, located. And he gives talks and teaches workshops in many places around the world. And um, in April 2020, he gave a four-part workshop for the Teachers of God Foundation, which was a huge success. Um, People were really impacted by your work that month. Mm. So that's the the potted history, Diedrich. Um, I noticed that in your bio you say that you formed most of your core beliefs by the time you were three and a half in those prisoner of war camps. Mm-hmm. And perhaps people listening think, well, you know, we form our beliefs as we go through our life, not quite so early on. So talk to me a little bit more about that, about how core beliefs are formed and how, how that becomes what you think of as your character. Yeah, that's a great question, and then the timing is interesting. Um, so, what, what the way I see it, and the way and the, which has now mostly been uh, scientifically supported and and uh, backed up, is that when I'm little, everything that happens in the family or around me is a reflection of who I think I am. So, if my mom and dad are gloriously happy twenty four hours a day, seven days a week. I must be an amazing little boy. 
if that's not the case, there's something wrong with me. And that's extremely important that I accept that teaching as, as law, because otherwise I'll keep looking outside of myself for the reasons why I'm so screwed up. The reason I'm screwed up or was particularly more screwed up than I know uh, was because I believed that everything that happened around me when I was little, and you can say from the age of in utero to roughly eight, uh, everything I noticed, everything I saw was a reflection of me. And because if you spent three and a half years in concentration camps, you don't see a lot of joyful, wonderful extensions of love. <clears throat> what, what I saw uh, in terms of relationships, and that's why uh, I absolutely love the subject of relationships. Why is that so important? Because all the relationships I ever saw between men and women for three and a half years plus was men beating women or men torturing women or men killing women and women getting sick and women being put in positions where they had absolutely no power and no strength to support what their natural instincts would be to support a family. All of that, all of that came out completely skewed. And because everything was so out of place compared to what one would call a normal family environment, there's no such thing. Um, I developed beliefs that, that everything was my fault, uh, that I was intensely, immensely guilty for everything that I saw around me, and that that guilt was a permanent fixture that became my personality. <clears throat> and for those of you that know the Course uh, in Miracles, you, you probably remember that uh, whatever belief you have, you're going to project and you'll see it outside of you. So what I saw outside of me was a horrible world. I saw a world where I hated everybody and everybody hated me. And um, I would make absolutely sure that any attempt that anybody made at extending love to me, I would sabotage um, very effectively to the point where I had several failed relationships. We'll get back to that later. There are no failed relationships, but on, on paper or in the illusion, they certainly would appear to be failed. Till there came a point where I said, this, this is not sustainable. I'm, I absolutely hate the self I am. I hate my world. I hate my life. I hate everybody in my life. Why stick around? And this was when I was about 50. <clears throat> and I had had um, an incredibly... Uh, let's say, well-developed drinking habit by then. I drank an immense amount of booze. Uh, let's say an average of a bottle of vodka a day was, was pretty well my intake on a daily basis. And there came a point where I said, I can't do this anymore. And at that moment, I heard myself say, there has to be a better way, which was very strange because I was not familiar with The Course in Miracles at all. And yet that is the, the, the lead line that I picked up from the course later when I when I really dove into it. And then uh, I recognized that whatever I made up in those first eight years about myself was just a belief I made up. It, it well, wasn't... Let's, let's just unpack that a little bit, because up until the age of three and a half, you were in a concentration camp. Yeah. Here, logically, you might think... It's, this is not about, this is nothing to do with me. I've been placed in a horrendous situation that is right. caused by all of these adults around me. It's nothing to do with me. Right. So explain a little, because that doesn't, that seems counterintuitive. That, it, that it, you, yeah, it yeah. is It is counterintuitive, but the reason it, it holds is that as a little ego, you don't know about blame. Everything uh, that happens around you as a, as a tiny person is about you. 
And of course, that is a brilliant place to be because that is also what we eventually use to heal. Because if it wasn't about me and it was about, let's say, the Japanese or, or the war or the fact that there are camps in the world, if it was about all those things, they would all have to change for me to be happy. And, and one thing you and I are perfectly clear on, nothing is ever going to change outside of me till I change my beliefs. And once I change my core beliefs or start correcting them, <clears throat> I'd start seeing an entirely different world. So the world I see now is, is vastly different from the world I saw 30 years ago when I started doing my work. It's a completely different, different place. And it, uh, what's kind of amusing, Byron Katie has this wonderful saying, which, which just amused me when I first heard it, that when she walks into a room, she knows that everybody adores her. When I walked into a room in those days, I knew that everybody hated me. Yeah. They, just, they just didn't know it yet. Yeah. And then I would make sure that they would find out really quickly. Yes. <laughs> so it never took me long to turn people against me. Brilliantly. Yeah. And then because it had to line up with your belief. Absolutely correctly. And and so what one that lining up happened, I said, see, there it is. Yeah, I'm, I'm right. I, I, I am a monster. What I believe about myself is true. It's not a belief, it's my character, it's my personality. And of course. Being uh, relatively young, when I was first sent to therapists, I think I was 11 or 12, when, when I first was sent to uh, professionals to try to fix this horrible little kid that I was, nothing could be done because I wasn't going to cooperate. Mm -hmm. And that is completely understandable because the ego demands allegiance. And if it doesn't get allegiance, then it will simply ignore what's happening. There's a fantastic line in the course that says, no evidence can convince you of a truth you do not want. So I could have 400 people standing around me saying, we love you. It wouldn't mean a thing to me. Till I recognized, okay, what's blocking that? What is blocking that love? It's my, my belief about me. And then the breathtaking discovery I made really early on in my work with the course was, None of this is permanent. None of this means anything in truth. None of this has anything to do with who I am. But all of it has to do with who I think I am. And it's my thoughts alone that cause me pain. It's not my personality. It's not my character. It's my thoughts. Who chooses these thoughts? So I knew right from the beginning that if I wanted to make a significant inroads in uh, the level of self-hatred, I would have to find out who that I was without knowing that I intimately, without diving into the cesspool I call my mind, I would never know all the uh, disgusting, revolting, uh, hate-worthy thoughts I had about not just myself, but about everybody else as well. I had to confront them and look at them with love and recognize, you made that up. That is not true. And that, I think, for me, and, and if you ask me tomorrow, you'll get a different answer. But, but today, today, that, for me, was the biggest gift from the Course, where I really, really got, I integrated that who I think I am has nothing to do with who I am. And that the so-called person doesn't even exist at all. And so you could call our work, uh, you introduced it beautifully as based on Buddhism and Aratunal Healing and of course some miracles and all kinds of other wonderful healing modalities. Uh, in modern language, it could be called transpersonal psychology. Mm 
And that's because it is transpersonal. So the relationships that we're going to be talking about are not personal relationships. They're, they start out as personal relationships, and the course calls them special, but they have a purpose. And the purpose is to transform them out of special, out of personal, into the divine. We're on this planet to let go of our humanity, even though it's so highly treasured by uh, but people don't, that don't really have a clue what's going on in the world, otherwise you wouldn't treasure humanity. It's, it's to transform humanity into a divinity. And so when you and I meet, we genuinely say namaste, which means the divine in me recognizes and greets the divine in you. And that's where we have to go if we want to go stop throwing bombs at each other. Yeah, yeah. L let me just... Um ask you a couple of, of questions before we get to, to the relationship stuff. You met, you've mentioned the word ego two or three times. In mm. your perspective, what is, what is the ego? Is it useful at all? It, it absolutely is useful. Uh, I, I, you may remember this, but I, I think I mentioned to you a couple of years ago, but three or four or five years ago, every year I go to Holland uh, to give a talk. I won't go anymore, but but I have so far for the last eight years or nine. And one day in, in January, they asked me, what are you going to be talking about in September? Which to me is insane because I don't know what I'll be talking about with you five minutes from now. But I just thought a thought came and that thought was the ego is the right hand man of the Holy Spirit. And so I wrote that to them. And within five minutes, I got an email back saying, what the hell are you talking about? That doesn't make any sense at all. But then I tried to explain, and uh, to my satisfaction, I explained it, maybe not to theirs, uh, is that how do, how do I know I have healing to do? How do I know uh, who I think I am? By the mere fact that the ego provides me with pain and discomfort all day long. And the Course has a beautiful line about that, and it says that discomfort is aroused only to bring the need for correction to awareness. Where does that discomfort come from? That comes from the ego. The Holy Spirit doesn't do that. The Holy Spirit doesn't kick me in the shins and says, hey, who do you think you are? No, the ego does. So from my point of view, I owe a deep sense of gratitude to the ego, not just for that, but also for keeping me alive. Because that was I didn't survive uh, three and a half years in the camps plus um, years in Indonesia under uh, basically civil war, plus two years in a foster home where I wasn't allowed to ride home and I was physically and sexually abused. The ego kept got me through that. So my anger and my self-hatred was so powerful and was such an incredible armor, not just against love, it was that, but it was also an armor against whatever anybody would try to do to me. So I got into fights all the time, physical fights with the entire school at recess. But nobody ever touched me because I was in such a rage that I could use whatever <clears throat> strength you have as an eight-year-old, which is not a lot, but I had enough to keep the whole school away. So from that point of view, the ego has been immensely beneficial. What is the ego? Um, the course will give you a, a long range of answers. I will say it's the idea that I can be separate. It's the idea that it's my fault that I'm separate. It's the idea that, that I can be anything other than love. 
It's a belief that I'm unworthy. It's a belief that I'm not good enough. It's a belief that I deserve to be punished. Uh, there's religions built on that idea, a religion that starts with mea culpa, which is Latin for I am guilty. Well, if you keep repeating that, you, you believe it more and more, and every one of us repeats it without knowing it. So we're constantly repeating mea culpa. And because that is so unbearable, we tend to project it. And that's where wonderful blame comes in. It's your fault that I'm screwed up. It's, a, it's the fault of the camps. It's the fault of my parents. It's blah, blah, ad nauseum. To the point where you finally say, well, it, maybe it is. Maybe it is all their fault. Maybe that is true. But I can't do anything about that. What can I do? What can I have an impact on? What can I actually do to create a new and completely different and loving experience at age 50? And that was to recognize that it was all me. It had nothing to do with any of those people. It had nothing to do with what was happening around me. It had to do with my interpretation of what was happening around me. And that interpretation clearly was wrong. If it had been right, I would have been happy. Happy, yeah. Yeah. Um, when we worked together in 2020, one of the things that, that you wrote in, in the stuff that you gave was that one of the foundational premises of your six-step process, which you know we're going to go into in a minute, is that nothing outside of me can bring me anything I need and nothing outside of me needs to change in order for me to be happy. Right. And as we're recording this, Diedrich, um, Russia have invaded Ukraine and all of that stuff is going on in the world. And so there are very many people in the world right now who think that something very radical needs to change outside in order for lots of people to be happy. So mm -hmm. how, are they, how are they wrong? I'm not saying we're, I'm not saying they're wrong, but but I think I don't know how long we've consciously been on the planet, say 20, 30, 40, 50,000 years. We've always thought something outside of us has to change. I mean, what's happening in, in, in Ukraine and in, in Russia and in Belarus and, and the surrounding countries is nothing new that's been going on for thousands and thousands of years. And that is because the world is run by four year olds. So Putin is, a, is a, a badly behaved little four-year-old and he's attacking other four-year-olds and they're reacting and the four-year-olds on the planet are reacting to the other four-year-olds. So what has to happen is we have to grow up and that has to do with me. I'm not gonna ask Putin to grow up. It's irrelevant what he does. Of course, he can kill all of us. He has that capability or we, or we can wipe out Russia. We have that capability. That to me is, is such, it's a waste of time to even think about that, because if that happens, it happens. But till it happens, you and I have only one job, and that is to extend love. And how do I extend love? I have to learn to love first. And what this work is for more than anything else for me is to learn to love. And what does that mean? Is to learn to let in that the truth of me and the truth of you has never changed that we are the same, that whatever I do to you, I do to myself, whatever you do to me, you do to yourself, and to really recognize that we are in this together, not in a, in a comrade kind of thing, we're in the same boat, let's work together. No, we're, we're in it together in a much more organic, integrated way. 
until we get that, this will continue. And you can worry about it, you can be anxious about it, and we have a, a wonderful little process about it because that has nothing to do with, with Ukraine. It has to do with me. And that is so important to get. That is long. I mean, Buddhism has a very, very simple recipe for worry. It says very simply, if you can do something about it, do it. If you can't, don't worry about it. Well, I'm not going to change the Russian-Ukraine situation. But I can change how I interact with you. I can change how I interact with the people here at the center. That is what transforms the world. And that has to be my focus. Because it seems that um, the energy of war, you know, the anger energy, the energy of, you know, I'm right and you're wrong, is is often the same on both sides. Absolutely. Yeah. So so there's there's the energy of war being met by the energy of we want peace, but in a very angry way. Yeah, yeah, no, and, and it's it's brilliant that you see that because because that's that's why the subjects of relationships is so important because that is what the, what we're seeing now between Russia and, and Ukraine is just a, a, a macro of what we have at home in micro. It's exactly the same. The energy is the same. How often do I? Not currently, not not the last six years or so, but how often in the past did I blame my partner? How often in the past did I want her to change? How often in the past did I think if if only I got rid of her, or if I only could be with Susan, then I'd be happy. Mm-hmm. And and we I can all remember saying to my husband, "If you would just do what I tell you, you'd be happy." I can actually remember <laughs> those words. Really, remember, yeah, remember yeah. them coming out of my mouth. Yeah, and is is he still laughing or? <laughs> <laughs> But, but the thing is, we believe that. And, and the thing is, if you go to mainstream couple therapy, that is what you get. That's the guidance you get. Yes, yes. You, if you do the dishes and you take the garbage yes. out and you put the kids in bed, but you drive them to school, everything will be fine. And of course, it will be briefly because the ego responds to getting its so-called needs met. The minute a need is met... Now it's okay, everything is fine. However, the ego is a need machine. And because the, the belief that there is a need is an erroneous, a mistaken belief, it can never be supplied. It is, it is a, an insane idea that cannot be fixed by an outside action. So if I have a belief in lack, you can give me billions, it won't make any difference. And then there's Incredible studies that have shown that when people win mega lotteries, tens of millions of dollars in five years are broke. Why why is that? Because their belief is in lack. Their belief is in there's not enough or I am not enough or I'm not good enough. So they'll divest themselves of what is evidence against their beliefs. I cannot tolerate evidence that goes against my belief. The ego will either ignore it or destroy it or walk away from it but I cannot tolerate it. It's not where I can sit. I can only sit in the evidence for my beliefs till I say, I'm not doing that anymore. This is unbearable. This is unbearable. I mean, we can, we can both sit here. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, so let's talk about when you got personally got to that point where you just thought, when you said there has to be a better way, what did you do? What was the first thing you did? Well, the first thing I did was uh, pick up the course. 
and and the story my my story of the course is so similar to so many i've heard two years before that a friend of mine had given me a course of miracles <clears throat> and i had heard about it I, I knew nothing about it i i liked the title i thought that if i can take a course and perform miracles that'd be kind of exciting um <laughs> And so I opened I opened the course and the line that I read was uh, sin is lack of love as darkness is lack of as lack of light. And I thought, wow, that's what I've always thought. This this is for me. And then the next line was about the Holy Spirit and the Father and the Son. And I said, this is not for me. And, and I threw the book away. Two years later, when I was at the point of either I commit suicide, I picked a spot where I was going to drive my car off this uh, Vancouver to Whistler Highway. There was one spot where there was no barricade <clears throat> and at least a thousand foot drop. So there was no risk of a wheelchair waiting at the bottom. Uh, I thought, well, let me dive into the course and see if it will make a difference. I opened the course, started. Uh, first of all, I made a, an incredibly important decision for me and that may resonate with one or two other people. I had never followed leadership from anyone. Even though even though I played international sports, um, I always ignored coaches. Uh, coaches on occasion left me off a team because I was obnoxious and didn't do what they told me to do. I wasn't going to accept leadership from anyone other than me. At that point, I decided that hasn't worked so well. This my leadership of, of this little vehicle I call Diederik has gotten me into a lot of trouble. It's gotten me into the point where I'm virtually emotionally, spiritually bankrupt uh, and ready to step out permanently, I'm going to surrender. And what I got from the course immediately was, this is a 365-day mind training. I can do the math. That's a year. So I said, okay, I'm going to give it a year. And if in a year my life has not changed, even a fraction for the better, I can still find that spot on the highway and drive down or find a big tree. That's still very doable. But within a few days, my life was changed. And within a few days, I thought, holy shit, that I'm onto something that actually works. I felt different. Um, I completely surrendered to the authorship, like the authority issue, which had been huge for me and all my life, um, suddenly became completely unimportant because I knew that my authority was going to kill me. So I, I had, I, I'd lost faith in what my ego could do for me on a day-to-day -day basis. So I withdrew faith from that and gave it to something I didn't know anything about, and that's love. So I gave it to the loving instructions of the Course. And I found out really, really quickly that, that the Course is unbelievably radical, and, and it doesn't push your foot around, it doesn't pull punches. It starts lesson one. Everything you see in this room doesn't mean anything. Wow, that's yeah. that's cool. Second lesson is way more radical. It says, I have given everything. To... I'm done. At lesson two, I said, I'm done. This is what I need. I have given everything the meaning it has for me. What an incredible lifesaver that is. Because if, if I did that, then there is an I that did that. And that I has given it the wrong meaning yeah. because, because I'm miserable. So I'm going to ask, who is that I? Is there anything we can do about that I? Is it fixed? Is it my personality? Is it my character? Or is it a set of beliefs? And I came to the conclusion really quickly, it's a set of beliefs. It's nothing permanent. 
because nothing real can be threatened or not, nothing unreal exists there in this piece of God. So it cannot be permanent. So it is something I invented. And I invented it for a reason. But that reason is no longer operable. It no longer serves me. Actually, it stopped serving me when I was about 10 or 11, because at that point, <clears throat> my life was already so miserable that at that point, if there had been a choose again trained therapist that I came in contact with me with, uh, my life would have been changed at age 10 or 11, but there wasn't. So tell us about the choose again process. So there's six so the, steps. What are the six steps? The, the, the six steps are, are incredibly simple. The first step is to acknowledge that I'm upset. And that sounds easy because uh, I can acknowledge that anytime, but most of us don't. Most of us are uh, in a chronic state of irritation, worry, anxiety, uh, depression, you name it, without ever acknowledging it. Mm -hmm. So when I ask, how do you feel on a scale of one to 10? The answer I always get is a seven, which actually means a minus 22, but they're, <laughs> but they're completely unaware of it. Yeah. So that was step one, is simply to say I'm upset, not give the reason. Just and that, that is a huge challenge for me. For, for me, it was, uh, but for, for clients that come to our center or in sessions or in circles or workshops, they want to tell the story. Yeah. Uh, and they go to a therapist where they tell the story once a week and they say, my therapist is fantastic. I, I tell the story once a week. I feel so good. I feel heard. Uh, I feel acknowledged. I feel validated. Uh, I, I, I'm told that what I'm feeling is completely natural. That's a great therapist. And I said, wonderful. How long have you seen this therapist for? 12 years. How, <laughs> are you feeling any better? No, but once a week, I feel really good. because I, So I said, well, here's the bad news. You don't get to tell your story here. And that is an upsetting idea because we, we're so used to saying, I'm upset because. Yeah. And so what I, what I teach is the first thing you have to learn is to take the word because out of your mouth in context of I'm upset. Just say I'm upset. And that goes back to, of course, the, the lesson that says I'm never upset for the reason I think. Well, if that's true, then because is meaningless. Yeah. Because because says I know why I'm upset. Here's the reason. But, ac <laughs> but actually, I don't know. Yeah. So and that people also say I'm, I'm upset because of you. Oh, yeah, and that's that a good, uh, takes us back to the second step, doesn't it? <laughs> Uh, I, I love that one. Yeah, it's you I'm upset at. Great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and feel free. I'm, I'm here. Uh, the second step is, is even more breathtaking and challenge. And that is, this is all about me. This has nothing to do with my father, my mother, the Japanese, the war, my partner, not having money, having money, uh, not drinking, drinking. It only has to do with me. And I, after having used this now for 25 years, I've come to the conclusion that any relationship in which step two is the dominant uh, approach to problem solving is a happy relationship. It is, it's simply a, a money back fail proof guarantee for being happy because you no longer blame your partner. Yeah. You no longer blame your youth. You no longer bring your upbringing. You no longer bring the fact that that you're white instead of brown or that you're yellow instead of black or whatever nonsense you come up with. 
It is not about that. It's simply about me. And, and that, to, yeah, that is difficult for people to accept. It's incredibly difficult because it takes you out of blame. And if I can't blame, then the ego automatically reverts back to self-blame, which is what it's really good at. That's what it started at. Everything is my fault, remember? So self-blame is an easy step for the course to take, for, for this ego to take. But what I have to learn and recognize is that all blame has to be undone. Not just of you, but of the self as well. Yeah. Now, how am I going to do that? How can that be done? That can only be done if I take on the faith-based position, and it's purely a faith-based position, that nothing has ever gone wrong. And if nothing has ever gone wrong, then, of course, step two is a piece of cake. Because I guess indeed, right, that lots of people, you, you, you must come across a lot of people who, who don't have a faith. They, they no, I, I know. Yeah, so how, how, if you say you need to take on a faith-based position, how, how do you get over that with people who say, well, I don't have any and I don't believe any of that? Well, how did I get over it myself? So the, the answer to that question is, is really simple. So I'm teaching you that whatever happens in your life, whatever has happened, has always been for you. There's always been a gift in whatever happened. Well, I don't believe that. My father beat me. My mother uh, had affairs. She left us when I was three. How can that have been beneficial? And so we don't know yet. But if it were true that everything has always been for you, how would that feel if it were true? I'm not saying it is. But if it were true, how would that feel? And the answer always is, well, that would be incredible. So fantastic. That's where faith comes in. So faith says, I don't know if it's true or not, but I'm going to live as if it is true and see what happens. And of course, what happens is that my whole life is transformed. Once I take ownership, once I recognize the fact that everything is aligned from the course that seems to happen to me, I have asked for and received as I have asked, and I can read that without seeing it as a guilt trip, but as a I asked for this somehow. That can only mean one thing, that there's a hidden healing offered in what just happened. So I'm married to, I'm married to Susan Telford. We have a wonderful relationship, I thought. And I find out that she's having an affair. Well, I'm pissed off, step one. And I can tell you why. No, you cannot tell me why. This is about you. Fantastic. Now I can actually look at the situation and go into my feeling, which is the third step. So I'm no longer looking at you as the cause for my upset. I know you had an affair. We, you told me that. But I'm not accepting that as the reason for my upset. So I'm really, I have integrated step two. Step three now, I have to go to the feeling. So what, what is the feeling I have? Well, I recognize that feeling immediately. That is a feeling of, of abandonment of being rejected, of being told in no uncertain terms that you are not good enough. Your love has no value for me. That's what you told me by having an affair. I know that none of that is true. I know that those come from beliefs. So then I take that feeling, the horrible, horrible feeling of abandonment and totally alone and rejected, and I walk it back to a memory from when I was little, and that's step four. So in step four, 
I say, where, when did I first have this feeling? And I know exactly what it was. I was five years old. I had nightmares every night uh, to do with the camp. And I would scream and scream and scream. And my mother would come and she would comfort me. And, and I would probably fall back asleep after a while. This night I was screaming, but my mother didn't come. So I got up and we had a large house. So uh, instead of going straight to the living room, I took a, another route and came through their bedroom, which had a door open to the living room and saw my mother sitting on the couch, holding hands with another man. <clears throat> and I died. Uh, at that moment, I was completely denied as being of any value at all. I had lost all my support. Um, my mother is the one, my mother and my brother are the two people that got me through the camp that helped me survive physically if not emotionally and, and spiritually, but certainly physically. And all that support fell away in that moment. And that moment, my self-hatred became absolutely overwhelming. I didn't experience it as self-hatred. I experienced it as hatred of my mother. Mm -hmm. I experienced it as hatred of all women. I experienced it that all women will be punished from now on because they've abandoned me. They've betrayed me. They have put my very life at risk. And to be honest about that is crucial. So to really recognize what did I make up at that moment is important. Because now the transformation comes on and then takes you to step five. And the step five is the first of the two forgiveness steps. And the first step is forgive me for believing that there's something wrong with me. The fact that my mother's holding hands with somebody else doesn't say anything about me. It has nothing to do with me. Forgive me for believing that there's something wrong with my love. That's not true. Forgive me for believing I'm unworthy of support or being cared for. That's not true. But I made all those up at that moment. And I lived my whole life as if they were true. And so um, I would attract wonderful women into my life. And then I would sabotage their love at, at a deep level to punish them, but at a deeper level to punish myself and to continue punishing myself. You don't deserve love. You have absolutely no right to even look for it. And that, uh, in, my, in my own life, culminated into a pathological level of jealousy to the point where around 50, I said, I'm not ever going into another romantic relationship because the jealousy is unbearable. And... I didn't realize that it could be healed. I didn't realize that jealousy simply says, I'm a, I'm a horrible beast. Of course, she's going to be with somebody else. Mm -hmm. When you heal that and you recognize, I am actually an inside child of God, which is an exciting idea. And if she goes to somebody else, it says nothing about me. What she does with her body says nothing about me. And then the last step is to remember and do a forgiveness on the fact that I forgot who I am. So forgive me for forgetting that I am love. Forgive me for forgetting that my mother is love. Forgive me for forgetting that all people, all women and men, are love. I forgot. I forgot how when I was you, little. Sorry, how do, you, how do you work with people in step six who don't believe that? You don't you have, have to no believe. Basis. 
No, it, it, that's that's exactly uh, a really important point because then the answer to that is the same as the answer I had earlier. So I'm telling you, you say, forgive me for believing I'm for forgetting that I'm love. And I said, thank God you remembered. And you say, well, I don't really believe in love. I don't believe that that's true. The answer to that is the same as I gave you before. But if it were true, how would that feel? And And if we do this in a circle and we ask everybody to close their eyes, and I have my eyes open, of course, and I say, just let in for a minute that you are unchangeably love, that who you truly are is pure, pure, pure love. How would that feel? And then I see 12, 15 faces changing from this to, wow, that would be incredible. I said, exactly. Let's live as if it is true and it will become true. It's not true for you now. We all know that. There's many, many things that I say in, in lectures or in workshops or in, in a conversation like this with you that I don't believe, but I live as if I know it's true. And that makes it true. So how many people believe in oneness? It's not something you believe in. You either accept it as, as truth or you reject it and you go back to duality and in duality, nobody will ever be happy. It's impossible. It's absolutely impossible to be happy in duality. As long as there's a you and an I, happiness is out of the question. The only thing possible, as long as we have a you and an I, is a bargaining system that works for both of us. Yeah, we temporarily agree. (laughs) You get get what you want, I get what I want. We have a a fantastic marriage. (laughs) Yeah. But, of course, the, the bargaining will fail sooner or later, because yeah, yeah. it always does. Yeah. You said we were going to have sushi on Saturday, and, and now you insist we have pizza. But that was not the deal. We agreed we would have sushi. <laughs> I don't feel like sushi, says Susan. So now the bargaining is broken down. Yeah. You've betrayed me. Yeah, she never loved me. <laughs> she, she she faked it all along. I mean, we all know yeah. that women fake it all the time, but, but now <laughs> I, I have proof. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> um, there was something else came in my mind to ask there and I've forgotten. Um, what was it I was going to say? I don't know. I've lost my chain of thought there. So let's let's talk about um, the Integrated Awakening series. So Diedrich is going to be our teacher in May in the Integrated Awakening series. And he's teaching um, four masterclasses, four 75-minute workshops um, with the title, The Crucible We Call Relationships. So you've touched on it a bit, Diedrich, but say a bit more about why you wanted to teach this particular topic. Because in our first, the first um, set of masterclasses you did for us, it was just the choose again process in Mm -hmm. general. But this yeah. time you've, you've honed in on relationships in particular. So right. tell us about, about that, first of all, why, why you wanted to do that. Because everything is a relationship. Everything I see in my life is a relationship. I have a relationship with my desk. I have a relationship to my laptop. I have a relationship with my glass of water. I have a relationship to you. Everything is a relationship. And the question, the only question on the table is who is the I that I'm in relationship with? Is it the small S self or is it the capital S self? Who is the I that I bring to the relationship? So you and I in a relationship, uh, if we're not 
if we're not trained or have done a lot of work, it's small as self to small as self. And we all know how much fun that is. So my work is to purify the relation, all the relationships till there are from the capital S self to the capital S self. So that till I know at the deepest level, at an integrated level, that I am nothing but a drop of water at 2,000 feet below the surface of the ocean, and the ocean is the oneness. There's no distinction between me and the ocean. We are one, completely one. That makes for an incredible relationship. For I no longer look at something that you have to give me. I no longer look at something that I have to fix in you. I no longer see my depressed mother when I look at you that I have to fix and fail at, which is normal in every relationship. You always marry either your mom or your dad or a combination. And the purpose of that marriage is to fail. Because the ego says you failed when you were little. And the ego tells you, well, now you're going to bring happiness to this person, your love. And here, I didn't tell you that's the fine print. You're going to fail at it. And why are you going to fail at it? Because it's not your job to make somebody else happy. My only job with you is to see you as me. There's a great line in the court that says, when brother behaves insanely, you can only heal them by perceiving the truth in them, by perceiving the sanity in them. So that's my job in a relationship, to always look at you and say, I know who you are. Lesson 78 has that fantastic relationship line that says, uh, he's, he stands in light, I'm in the dark. I remember and I, that was one of the things that you taught when we did it the last time. Yeah. And that was one of those, one that was one of those things that really hit me between the eyes. Um, when I really, I'd obviously read that lesson many times, but you highlighting that part that, you know, if, if, if I have a grievance against my brother, he's in the light where he's always been and I'm the one in the dark. And I thought, that can't be right. That can't be right. But oh, yeah, it's right. Yeah, right. it's I, I, I've simplified that a little in my own mind. That I now simply say, if I'm not happy, I'm wrong. <laughs> Yeah. It's it's that simple. That simply means if I'm not happy, I'm in the dark, I'm seeing something that's not true, I'm projecting my old beliefs on you, and I'm holding you responsible for them, even if you're screaming at me. Mm. Uh, because, the, and, and again, the, the course is, is such a fantastic ma manual for living a rich and full life. Uh, what comes to mind with that is the secret of salvation is about this, I'm doing this to myself. Uh, I had a good friend in Switzerland who asked me, who was working the six-step process, and he said, where in the course did you find step two? So I spent literally 15 minutes and sent him 36 pages, of course. It's in almost on every page. And why do people not see it? Because we don't want that one. We don't want step two. We want all the benefits, but we don't want to take complete and 100% responsibility for everything in my life. So however I feel about Russia, Ukraine, that is within me. However I feel about Putin or Biden or Trump is within me. However I feel about the relationship with my beloved is within me. And so relationship hell, and that's something we're going to be, be covering in, in, in our series, is holding myself responsible for how you feel and holding you responsible for how I feel. That is the death of any relationship.
And yet that is, that's the common reason for a relationship. I'll be with you because I think you're going to make me happy. Exactly. And if you don't, I'll find somebody else who will. Yeah. Yeah. And and the, the wonderful thing is that person shows up almost immediately. And you say, oh, my God, there, there she is or there he is. Now I'm happy. And then after a little while, your beliefs start looking at this person and start seeing an entirely different situation. And once again, your relationship with the small S self. And the capital S self just waits. It waits on welcome. It waits for me to say, wow, I'm in a relationship with myself. That's when I can heal. And your job is to reflect, and that's all, to reflect who I think I am. And as I and take that reflection in and don't take it as a guilt trip. Don't take it as something is going wrong, but simply saying, wow, here's the gift. Here's the gift. I'm totally pissed off at you. That can only mean there's something that I'm believing about me right now that I need to heal. And again, I'll say it, discomfort is aroused only to bring the need for correction to awareness. The correction is within. The ego says, yeah, that's true. Discomfort is aroused and I'm going to correct it over there. <laughs> but that that's the ego's plan for salvation, which will not work. Yeah. And I've, I honestly have tried to change a whole bunch of people. I've never been very good at it. It just doesn't seem to work. Yeah. Just because the, <laughs> yeah, and then the crucible, I, the reason I chose that word, because it's it's a crucible. Uh, yeah, it's it's a tiny little vessel. It can be larger, of course, but it's a vessel that jewelry makers use to with high heat burn the imperfection out of gold so if you have you have gold and there's a little a little copper in it there's a little something else in it there's some imperfections that you put it in the crucible and the imperfections come to the surface and you skim them off and you're left with 24 karat gold that's what the relationship is so it is a place of incredible discomfort because you can imagine the high heat is, is not comfortable and it's a place of absolute total complete transformation if that's what you're after. And people say, well, that's what I want, but I don't want to change X, Y, and Z. Well, then you're not after that. So it becomes a matter of, do I truly want to be happy? Is that all I truly want? And if the answer is yes, this is going to work. If the answer is yes, and I want another job, or I need a car, or I want the war in Russia to stop, it will not work. Because as long as I keep looking outside of me for any comfort, for any relief, it will fail. Not only will it fail, but it will strengthen my core beliefs. And that's the last thing we want to do. Yeah. And what about if people think, well, I might be willing to, to do the work, but as long as my partner does it too. Right. And that's that's exactly what I'm saying. So really what, what I'm saying in that sentence is I want uh, the peace of God and I want my partner to do it. <laughs> in other words, I don't want the peace of God. I want my partner to be different. And if he or she is different, then I will have the peace of God. And of course, the insanity behind that becomes clear really quickly, because how many of us have tried that? And there was actually, there was a teacher in Vancouver, uh, a very well-known teacher, who at one point came to one of our circles and said, it's, it's actually not the way you put it. What, the way it is really is I'm 100% responsible for 50% of the relationship. And I said, isn't that fascinating? How do you figure out the 
How do you decide that? Which 50% exactly are you taking responsibility for? How do you know that doesn't shift, shift to 55, 45? How do you not show it shifts to 70, 30? And how do you check that? In other words, you cannot be a little bit pregnant. Either you go in for it entirely. In other words, I am responsible for everything in my life or not. And if the answer is I'm not, good luck. I don't know what you're going to do. I don't know how you're going to spend the next 30, 40, 50 years of your life in joy. I have no idea, but I'm not going to join you. I'm going to stay on the side of this is all about me. I'm the only one I can do something about. I'm the only one that brings this insanity to it. I'm the only one that has given everything the meaning it has for me. I did that. Nobody else. Yeah. And you can say, well, but your parents yelled at you. Your father beat you. The, the Japanese were terrible. Yeah, maybe they were. I don't see it as such. I see that everything as a cry for love, an extension of love. Well, clearly, the concentration camp is a cry for love. And I can look at Putin's little face and I say, what a cry for love. What a cry for love. And what do we do with it? We throw bombs at it. It's time we start reacting with love. It's time we start recognizing that the only thing that will bring world peace is inner peace. Yeah. It's when everybody, when we all collectively say what you said and what Helen and Helen Shuckman and Bill Thetford say, said, there has to be a better way. Yeah. And how far, that's what it feels like, is how far are we prepared to go before we all say that? Um, well, the, the good news is there's no we. How far am I willing to go? Am I, am I willing to live that 100%? Am I willing to live 100% that nothing outside of me affects me? Well, the answer is yes, I'm willing, which I've always found uh, a shortcoming in the course because the ego says, yeah, I'm willing. Yeah, and does nothing. <laughs> it does absolutely <laughs> sweet, sweet bugger all. But, but, but <laughs> at, at one point in the course, it says active willingness. And now you're talking my language. Yeah. Now you're saying you cannot just be willing, you have to do something about it if yeah. you want what you say you want, and, if you yeah. truly want inner peace. You're going to have to question everything you believe is true on a minute-to-minute -minute basis. Yeah. The question on the table, are you worth it? And the answer, it's so interesting when I ask that question, there are people that say, oh, absolutely, and I know they're there. And there are people that say, well, I know they're not there. But it's a crucial question. Am I worth it? Because the answer comes from your belief. So the belief already has decided you're unworthy. You have no value. You're a monster, whatever. So the answer to am I worth it has to be if I'm honest. No, I'm not. <clears throat> but if I want to make that leap of faith, if I really want to say there has to be a better way, then I have to start by saying I'm worth it. God damn it, I'm worth it. Without, without hesitation, and I'm going to do what it takes. What does it take? Well, to start, it takes 365 lessons and about 1,200 pages of finely written, insanely dense text. That's a good start. But it also says all day long, I'm going to check in how I feel. Am I at peace? Am I at peace? If not, what am I believing? And that's the shortcut. 
So the shortcut of you and I are in a relationship, I, I see you walk in with a frown, and <clears throat> I'm not affected by your frown. Remember, we don't live in relationship hell. And I now have the, the permission for you from you to say, Susan, what are you believing right now? And Susan will say, I don't want to talk about it. Fuck off. Or she'll say, thank you. Wow, I really want to look at that. But the invitation has to be genuine. And if, if the invitation is to change you so I get to feel better, it's pure manipulation and it will backfire because you will know. The person that I ask, how you, what are you believing right now, knows where I'm coming from. It knows intuitively or energetically I'm coming either from love or I'm coming from fear and I want you to change so I feel better. And you'll respond accordingly. Yeah. That's such, you know, from having learned your process two years ago and used it extensive, extensively in my own life and also with clients, that that shortcut, I'm not at peace, what am I believing? And you said to me um, on one of our meetings to, to, to have that permission between my husband and I to, to say, what you know? What are you believing right now? That, that is transformative, Tamara. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. <clears throat> but, you, but you're right. the the way it said the way it said or the intention behind it can be. Well, what are you believing now? Now what? <laughs> we dealt with this yesterday. You're pissed off again? Come on now. Exactly. <laughs> you know this stuff. <laughs> Yeah. So um, your workshops begin May the 9th with an introduction to the Choose Again six-step process. So you're going to, you know, lay it out in detail how it works and also yeah. an invitation to people who attend to bring um, actual issues that they have to work one-to-one -one with you during the session. Um, second workshop is is more practical application um, as it applies to all sorts of relationships, not just intimate um, relationships. Right. And then the second two, um, are, there's going to be more time set aside for people to actually bring relationship issues that they're dealing with and um, to go through the process with you, which is a wonderful opportunity. I've observed you at work several times and um, the transformation people have is can be so fast. Incredibly you, fast. Well, yeah. you know, I've, I've seen people, I've seen you work with people and them have that realisation, oh my God, I made this up. I made it up, which means I can just let it go. Exactly. Uh, which I, yeah. you know, it's, it's amazing. It's amazing. Yeah. And, and so just to say a little bit more, because I was a little vogue, vague in the um, uh, in the description of the four sessions, but I really, as you said, I want I want to encourage people to bring real issues to the table, like 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 jealousy, like worry, like anxiety, like um, anger. Anger in relationships is, of course, lethal. It's lethal anywhere, but it will destroy a relationship. Um, any Anything that's that's a real issue in your relationship, please, please bring it up. And the reason I am so adamant about that is because it's not your relationship. It's not yours. It's everybody's. So when, you, uh, for example, we just did a 10-day workshop here, and at one point, sexual shame came up. 
and I asked, uh, there were 14, 17 people in the circles, did anybody else have an issue with, seven, with uh, sexual shame? 17 people have their hands up. It is an absolutely universal issue, and it plays out in relationships. Because what is my relationship to my sexuality was my relationship to your sexuality. How do, how do I react to that? It's a huge, huge field that it, that it very rarely talked about because we're so ashamed of it. And I've often, I've often proposed, but it's never been taken up by anyone, that we do a whole week workshop in the nude. So at least we can get rid of the, the physical shame. We can see each other's parts. It all looks the same. We all, None of us have never seen a naked woman or a naked man. It would be an incredibly freeing experience. I don't think it will happen in my lifetime, but... <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so um, any final words that you want to say about um, the workshops that are coming up? Just to encourage you to participate at the deepest and most uh, committed level, because, I mean, it may seem like oh, only four sessions, but I can guarantee you, absolute guarantee you, that if you pick up what you hear in those four sessions, either write them down or listen to them over and over. I presume they're recorded and they can go back yeah, to them. Yeah. <clears throat> Integrate them into your life. It will be all you need. Does that mean you never need help again? No, it doesn't mean that at all. I need help again at some point or another too. <clears throat> but it does mean that you're, you're now recognizing entirely without reservation, I can do this and I'm worth it. And if I apply this, my God, I can actually transform my relationship with my partner, my relationship with my kids, my relationship with my partners, my relationship at work. They're all the same relationship because they're all with the self or the capitalist self. And the more I recognize that and the more I give myself the gift of absolutely resolutely saying is I deserve to be happy. I'm claiming my birthright. My birthright is to be joyful. And that is unconditional joyful. That is the, the setting the goal, goal uh, joyful, where I know nothing outside of me needs to change. Nothing outside of me has to change for any reason at all. Everything in this moment contains everything I need to be joyful. And to spend four, uh, four and a half, well, four plus hours with, with a group of people that are committed, um, that bring real issues to the table is priceless. The, the, there's just nothing more exciting to me than than doing that work. I love it, and I will do it uh, as long as I had almost decided I wasn't going to do any more public speaking, but uh, this this got me going again. So <laughs> maybe I'll maybe I'll continue a little longer. Yeah, good. Yeah. Well, thanks. Thanks so much for joining us, Diedrich. I'm really looking forward to working with you again in May. And I really encourage uh, people to check out the uh, details that will be in the show notes for this podcast and come and join us for four 75-minute sessions with Diedrich Walzak. Thank you so much, Diedrich. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you again. Thank you, Susan. We'll, we'll continue having fun. That's what yeah. it's about. Yeah. Thank, Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of the Awareness Podcast. 
please remember to subscribe so that you receive a notification each time a new episode is released. Be sure to tune in next Friday for a special fifth Friday of the month episode with all four hosts of the Awareness Podcast, Bill Free, Jackie Greggs, Cindy Krupp, and me, Susan Telford. Listen as we discuss our own spiritual awakenings and answer questions from a live audience. The Awareness Podcast is brought to you by the Teachers of God Foundation in association with Pure Presence Conferences.